Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Happy Independence Day. And thanks for listening to this special Best of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Well, good morning and welcome to this second hour of the Best of Mornings with Carmen on this July the 4th. I want to start the, today with a little Calvin and Hobbes, not the comic strip Calvin and Hobbes, but the, um, the theological Calvin and the philosophical Hobbes. I'm reading here from James Bryce's The American Commonwealth. The American government and the Constitution are based on the theology of Calvin and the philosophy of Hobbes. Have you ever thought about the 4th of July being a day for Calvin and Hobbes? Well, it is. Um, my reread for today is Oz Guinness's Last Call for Liberty, How America's Genius for Freedom Has Become Its Greatest Threat. Wondering what you're reading today, what you're looking at. Be sure you reread the Declaration of Independence today. That is well worth your time. You can circle back and listen to the first hour for my reflections on that. We're going to open this morning with a conversation with John Plake from the American Bible Society on better living through the Bible. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBerge, and this is Faith Radio. All right, now John Plake is really here from the American Bible Society. I'm Carmen LaBerge. We're listening to Mornings with Carmen, and we are looking at the latest release from the 12th Annual State of the Bible Report from the American Bible Society. John, welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. Good morning, Carmen. Happy birthday. Yeah, and I thank love you. ginger cookies. Got to let you know. So looking forward to getting that recipe. A- absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so um, scripture engagement. Um, we talked last time about the decline in scripture engagement, um, but we want to talk about the importance of it today. Talk with us about human flourishing scores and how they have risen and how scripture engagement is linked to greater hope and resilience. You know, it's such a wonderful story. We've talked previously, and thanks for having us back to talk more about this great subject of how the Bible influences all of us in America who choose to engage with it. And what we had been tracking earlier in the year is that there have been some big declines in scripture engagement that we recorded early in the year, but we've gotten to the good news. And so today we released chapter three that really talks about the positive impact that the Bible has on those who choose to engage with it. And one of those big stories is that people who engage with scripture just have a better life overall. So we've collaborated for several years with researchers at Harvard University's T.H. Chan School of Public Health. They're wonderful people who have come up with a way of measuring what does a a good life look like? What is well-being like in everyday life? And so they've come up with a, a way to measure those things. And they look at happiness and life satisfaction. They look at overall mental and physical health, at living a life that has meaning and purpose, or 
feeling that we're people of character and virtue who have close social relationships and have some stability around our financial situation, not always worrying about what's going to happen tomorrow. So what's fascinating is during the pandemic, just like you'd expect, uh, well-being went down across America. We really struggled. A lot of things were disrupted for a lot of people. But during the pandemic, we also began to notice something about those who engage with the Bible, and that is that no matter what's going on in the world around them, they just do better than everybody else. I was looking this morning again at the numbers, and and particularly in the areas of meaning and purpose in life and having a sense of personal character and virtue and being happy and, and satisfied with their lives, people who are scripture engaged, just way higher scores in all of those areas of flourishing than the rest of the United States. And it just tells us that when we engage with scripture, we live a better life. And that's really what you know Jesus said. I, Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I've come that you might have life and have it to the full. Talk with us about flourishing. When you use that language, when you talk about a better life, um, you know, what what are you using to to quantify or qualify that term? We actually ask people 12 different questions about how they see themselves in their life. And these were not developed by us. They were developed by social science researchers like the folks at Harvard. And when we put those questions out, uh, we really didn't know what the answer was going to be. Do, do people who engage with the Bible do better than others? Are they more satisfied with their life? Are they healthier or not healthier? Do they have better relationships or not? But what we began to see was just that consistently, those who are consistently interacting with the Bible in a way that's shaping their choices and transforming their relationships, they discover that overall, they would say they have a higher sense of well-being. They're more hopeful. They deal with stress better. They're more resilient in the face of hardship. So that's what we mean when we talk about flourishing and well-being. When we talk about a human flourishing index and how we might measure it, um, just to, so that you guys listening know, the the scripture engaged people. So people who are engaged with scripture, that's not you know just I go to to church and I hear someone read a passage, but we're talking about people engaged with God in the context of His Word. Reported levels of flourishing nineteen percent higher than those who don't read the Bible. So that's like you know in these areas um, that are measured in happiness and life satisfaction, mental and physical health meaning and purpose, character and virtue, close social relationships. Um, you know, so people who are engaged in scripture, they have significantly uh, higher self-measures of those than people who are disengaged from the Bible. That's um, that's pretty extraordinary. It's not that we're just, quote unquote, happier. We actually see substantive differences from our non-scripture engaged neighbors in terms of um, health and social well-being, I mean, I, it it's interesting the range of topics that are included in flourishing. You know, it really is. There, there's a, a school of thought I think in in psychology. For years, they used to talk about psychology in in terms of disease model. They'd say, well, you know, if you're not schizophrenic, or if you're not depressed, or if you're not bipolar or something like that, then then maybe you're doing okay. But in more recent years, they begin to think of it in terms of, well, what's going right with your life? And that's that area, which is called positive psychology or well-being psychology. It's where uh, these measures of human flourishing have come from. 
And I think sometimes people ask the question, well, okay, you guys say it's important to read the Bible. You say it's important to engage with God's word, but what's it going to do for me? I mean, is it is all it going to do secure my my heavenly future, my eternity, or is it going to do something for me today? And what we discover by using these measures that weren't developed to measure the impact of the Bible, they were developed to measure people's mental and physical health and their social well-being. When we look at Bible users through the lens of these social science measurements, we discover, wow, it really does make a difference when I engage with God's word, and it makes a difference in my life today. Mm. So we're talking with John Plake. We're talking about the real difference. And when I say the real difference, you know, like measurable difference in terms of uh, how we score ourselves in areas of human flourishing. So the real difference that scripture engagement makes in our lives. Um, John, talk with us about the hope scale. What What is a hope scale and how do I measure myself on the hope scale? It's a great question. You know, the Bible talks a lot about hope and and hope is really the belief that the future is going to be better and that you have power to be involved in making it better. It, that's something that social scientists call agency. And there, there's been a lot of work on measurement around hope uh, for, I don't know, 20, 25, 30 years even. It started at the University of Kansas. Uh, Kansas University's C.R. Snyder came up with the psychology of hope. And now people like Chan Hellman at the University of Oklahoma have hope theory. They particularly work with people who have had adverse childhood events. You may have heard of the ACEs scale, talking about how some children really have difficulties that set them up on a trajectory for difficulties in their lives. And Chan Hellman has looked at the role of hope and how when people are able to develop hope, it can overcome some of the diversities or some of the adversities and the stresses that they've experienced early in their lives. And so that's really what we're talking about. We also wondered, well, okay, if people can have varying levels of hope, how do scripture engaged people do compared to everybody else? And we've been looking at this since 2020 as well. And just consistently scripture engaged people significantly higher levels of hope than others in America. And so it's really heartening to see that, you know, if you might score 16, if you're disengaged from the Bible, and as people begin to explore the Bible, that score comes up to around 17, and then for scripture-engaged people, more like 19. So um, there are these really noticeable differences going on in the level of hope that people have when they engage with God's Word. And I think it's because they understand their life is part of God's story, and there is a trajectory. There's something that's going to be happening um, that they're headed toward, and what they might be experiencing today isn't mm. the end of the story. Amen. We're talking with John Plake from the American Bible Society. We're talking about um, results, uh, outcomes of the State of the Bible report. You can find what we're discussing at stateofthebible.org. When we come back, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask John about the generational um, differences that they have observed in this 12th State of the Bible report. And we're also going to talk about um, trauma sufferers and how much trauma sufferers can genuinely benefit from real scripture engagement. Um, What a timely topic. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge. We'll be right back.
We believe in God the Father. We believe in Jesus Christ. We believe in the Holy Spirit. And He's given us new life. We're talking with John Plake. He serves with the American Bible Society, and we're looking at the 12th annual State of the Bible Report. You can find what we're talking about at stateofthebible.org. Um, John, what did you what did you all find in terms of maybe generational differences in, in terms of Scripture engagement and the way people describe themselves in terms of flourishing? You know, Carmen, there are big differences across generations. We tend to categorize the generations in a way that you might have heard of. So the oldest Americans we call elders. Then we have the baby boomer generation. We have Gen X, my generation. We have millennials. And then we have the youngest adult generation, which is Generation Z. Not all of Gen Z is currently adults. And we look particularly at Gen Z people who are ages 18 to 23. And so as we look at them, one of the things that we wanted to know is, well, how are they doing on the kind of flourishing that we've been talking about? And generally speaking, uh, the younger they are, the less well they're doing. And this shows up particularly when we look at their stress scores. So we use a a standard measure that would be used to evaluate someone for post-traumatic stress. And we just ask, well, what is your level of stress across 10 different measures? And overwhelmingly, Gen Z has higher levels of stress than any other generation. I just want to put this in context for you. So elders on average score less than five on a stress score. Uh, Gen Z on average scores about 15. So about three times as much stress for Gen Z as for the oldest Americans. And that's really telling. Uh, We've noticed a lot of disruption that is just age-related. For emerging adults, they're doing a lot of things for the first time. They're launching a career or they're launching a a lifelong relationship or maybe they're in college or trying to get through college. And now with the pandemic, there's been Zoom and there's been all of these disruptions to the job market and things. So there is a lot of stress for younger Americans and a lot less experience handling stress for them. So um, when we think about inviting people to engage with the scriptures, um, you know, there it seems to me that there are particular times in my own life when, you know, I recognize the the balm that I receive from engaging with the scriptures in particular times of stress or distress, certainly um, in the face of um, devastating diagnoses or trauma. But I'm not sure that as a Christian, when my inclination is to bring scripture to bear in those conversations, I'm not sure that that's well received in a culture where a lot of people are not engaging actively with the scriptures, right? So I want to be a scripture-engaged person who brings scripture to bear on the conversations of the day, but I'm encountering a culture that is maybe scripture-resistant. But you have found that the relationship of people who have experienced trauma and scripture engagement, like they have an overwhelmingly positive effect in terms of their experience of trauma. So can we bring those two conversations together, trauma and scripture engagement? Absolutely. You know, one of the questions that we had, and American Bible Society has been involved in working with people who have experienced significant traumas in their lives. And we've done this for quite some time. It started out actually working in the uh, in Central Africa after the Rwandan genocide and the the Congolese Civil War. 
And you've heard all of these big stories about child soldiers and and the issues that happened there. Well, out of that, American Bible Society was involved with a group of uh, Bible-oriented ministries that developed something called the Trauma Healing Institute. And we did that because pastors and church leaders were saying, we want to give people the Bible, but trauma is standing in the way. The experiences that they've had are preventing us from, from connecting with them. And what we discovered as we really leaned into scripture is we found, man, there's a lot of difficulty that's addressed in the Bible. There's lament and there's struggle. If you read the Psalms and read David, he's gone through some very difficult times and he pours out that hurt to God and actually finds that God helps him in the midst of it. So we're social scientists. So we wanted to ask the question, when people have experienced, personally experienced a significant trauma in their life, and we define that as something that's that's terrifying, that maybe makes them fear for their life at the time. And we, we asked them, have you had that experience? All Americans who have had traumatic experiences show lower levels of human flourishing, higher levels of stress, lower levels of hope. So trauma has this deep, lasting impact on people. But then we looked at the question, well, okay, if you've experienced trauma, are you engaging with God's word? And when we crossed trauma experience and scripture engagement, and then used those to look at human flourishing, happiness and life satisfaction and mental and physical health, what we discovered is that though trauma negatively impacts all areas of flourishing, scripture engagement is so powerful that it literally reverses those effects. So when we ask people, well, have you had a traumatic experience? And they say, yes. Then we say, well, are you scripture engaged? If they say yes, here's what we discover. Those people have higher levels of overall flourishing than people who have not experienced trauma and are not scripture engaged. So it's really powerful. There's so much hope that comes from engaging with God's word. So let me just recap it again. When trauma sufferers are scripture engaged, they actually flourish at higher levels than trauma-free people who are not scripture engaged. Yeah, and I don't, trauma-free people, um, yeah, I I don't know those people. I, I, I mean, we are afflicted in so many ways in our culture. So thank you so much for making that connection for us today. Um, John, if you guys want to read the full report and uh, these reports that are, um, you know, threads pulled out of it, you can do so at stateofthebible.org. If you'd like to connect um, directly with the Trauma Healing Institute that John talked about, you can find them at traumahealinginstitute.org. John, as always, thank you so much for joining us on Mornings with Carmen. It's a pleasure, Carmen. Have a great birthday. Thank you so much. Uh, you can find uh, the American Bible um, Society at AmericanBible.org. We'll be right back. One of the words that appears in the opening uh, of the Declaration of Independence is the word inalienable or unalienable and what it means to have unalienable rights. What are those? How do we get them? Who is this creator who endows us with these uh, self-evident unalienable rights? We're going to talk with Matthew Sorens about his book, Inalienable. Yeah, it's an interesting subject matter for a day like today, a day when we're talking about freedom and the desire in the human heart to live free. 
I want you to think about the things that you value about the United States of America today, what you value about your freedom, and how you might begin valuing those for others as well. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. This is a Best of Mornings with Carmen on July the 4th. We'll be right back. Sorens is back. He is one of three authors of a brand new book that drops today, Inalienable, How Marginalized Kingdom Voices Can Help Save the American Church. Matthew, welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. Always great to be with you, Carmen. So first of all, why don't you introduce introduce us to your co-authors and to the conversation or observations um, that led to this book? Sure. So my co-authors are, are good friends of mine. Eric Costanzo is a pastor, a Southern Baptist pastor down in Oklahoma, um, of a church that I've worked with through my work with World Relief, um, where I'm in charge of church mobilization and, and advocacy. And then Daniel Yang is actually both a neighbor of mine. We live in the same city uh, in Aurora, Illinois, and he's a missiologist over at the Wheaton College Billy Graham Center. And he's also the son of refugees, so he brings that perspective into this conversation as well. And really, I would say the book, Inalienable, um, you know, we, it started as a conversation between the three of us a few years back, really sort of lamenting. It feels like the American church has lost its way in some ways. And I, I think we probably would frame that in different ways from our unique perspectives. For me, part of it was in my work with World Relief, we've been resettling refugees with local churches for decades. And we were in this season when, you know, polling was showing that three out of four white evangelical Christians actually thought we should have a moratorium on refugee resettlement. And I was just really confused by that. It didn't seem consistent with the way that I was reading my Bible and that, you know, some the, the church I grew up in had taught me to read the Bible, where I saw all these passages about God's love for the vulnerable and specifically for vulnerable foreigners. And I think a lot of people probably have the same sense that I felt that somehow for a lot of people who identify as American Christians, we've gone off course and our faith has become about something other than commitment to the authority of God's word you know, focusing on God's kingdom, focusing on God's mission, and recognizing the image of God in each person. And so we really wrote the book um, to try to help reorient to those inalienable, foundational core truths of what it is to follow Jesus. And one of the the thoughts behind the book is some of these challenges we have in the, in the American church are not universal. We have brothers and sisters in Christ in other parts of the world who also have problems, and those church that's perfect, but they have different blind spots than what we might have. And how, what could we learn by reaching out to, to Christians from other parts of the world, um, and, as well as looking to the ancient church and um, really looking for some wisdom from some truths that have borne the test of time? Yeah, you certainly can't read the book of Acts and say to yourself, you know, the church is has national boundary constraints or the church is constrained, you know, or intended to serve only one kind of people. I mean, if you if you read the book of Acts, it's pretty clear that's not true. Um, and beyond the book of Acts uh, as well. But that's the one that sort of stands out bright light in my mind when you when you talk about this. We're talking with Matthew Sorens. The book is Inalienable. It just drops today. Matthew, let's talk about that word, inalienable. I think that, you know, when we first hear it, our mind leaps to the Declaration of Independence. That's where we think we hear that word. But that word means more 
um, and covers more territory than maybe what we think of when we think of what it affirms in the Declaration of Independence. Yeah, that's right. And so in some ways, we're kind of playing with the words there. I mean, we, you know, we love that part of the Declaration of Independence, affirming that everyone has a right to life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness, those inalienable rights. Um, But I think a lot of us kind of brush back by that word and don't know what it means. Um, But actually, I think Eric was the one who brought this, you know, that suggested this as a sort of a theme for the book. He noted that in in the original language, you know, the Latin word alias means other. So something that is inalienable means there is no other. It is so central, foundational. And in some ways that describes, you know, we're not necessarily looking at the inalienable truths around the founding of the United States, but what are the inalienable truths of the scriptures? Um, And in some ways much more important than the foundation of the United States. So to say that there is no other God uh, except the one God, which is, of course, a core biblical truth. And then even more in a sociological sense that there is no other. There's not this category of people who are different from us, who are less uh, made in the image of God, um, because God has, you know, very clearly in the New Testament laid out that there is, you know, th- that there is no favoritism with God, that people of every nationality are invited into his kingdom. And um, so that's where we got the, the the title. We really wanted to, in some ways, play on that, that focus that a lot of Americans have, a lot of American Christians have on the founding of the United States, and flip it on its head and say, what are the more, even more foundational truths that ought to be essential to us as followers of Jesus? That really, you know, these are the essential truths um, that we need to get back to if we're going to be faithful to following Jesus in our country, in our day. It's a really positive reset and refocus um, and reclamation of words that have, uh, you know, that maybe have morphed in our, uh, in our use over time. The book is Inalienable, How Marginalized kingdom voices can help save the American church. We're going to talk about the word save. We're going to talk about the American church. That's what we're focusing in on. So one of the things that stands out to me is, you know, I, well, I, I feel like what you guys are trying to do is get us refocused and recentered on these inalienable realities, the kingdom of God, the image of God, the, uh, the image of God and the people of God or as the people of God. Uh, get us refocused and recentered on the mission of God, holding out the word of God uh, to a world dying to know God. Like it feels like there are this, uh, there is this set of things that, if we were to recenter and refocus on, it, it changes what's, um, it changes what's in the viewfinder, uh, you know, of my of what I'm looking at and how I'm looking at it, and it also changes my like peripheral vision. Like, right, if mm-hmm. I'm if I'm recentered or refocused um, because I've got the Word of God back in its rightful place in my life, and I'm actually reading what it says in the Spirit of the Living God, like right, if I'm if I'm doing that, it does change my understanding of who the image bearers are, who we are as kingdom people together, what the kingdom of God advancing really is, based on what Jesus has told us. Like right, all of those things are happening, but that is really disruptive. Matthew, that is, that's going to be very disruptive. So talk about that because this is, this is going to be disruptive. Refocus, recentering. I mean, actually moving the center of something that is a terribly disruptive, uh, challenge. Yeah. You know, one of the stats that I came across in, in working on this book that really felt convinced me that we needed to write this, even if it is a little bit disruptive and I'm imagining it might be a little controversial for some people as well, but, um, there was a survey that found that uh, only a minority of self-described evangelical Christians of all ethnicities in the United States said that their identity in their faith was more important to them than their identity in being an American. 
which, you know, as Christians, it's really clear our citizenship is in heaven. We are, you know, foreigners and strangers on earth. We are seeking a better country to, you know, quote the author of Hebrews. We're supposed to be good Americans. We're supposed to be patriotic Americans. But in a clear, absolutely secondary sense compared to our identity in Christ. And yet that seems to have been confused for a lot of Americans. And that's really where, we, you know, I, I felt this needs to be something we refocus on, not on our national identity, though I'm, you know, very grateful to be an American, but to refocus on God's word and his kingdom, his mission, um, and uh, and on his image in, in human beings that he has created in his image. Um, that idea of decentering, um, again, we part of that is a lot of Americans have come to presume or maybe have always thought that the United States is sort of the center of the, of the church. And in a demographic sense, there was a time that that was true. There was more Christians, at least self-identifying as Christians in the United States than, you know, than in any other region. That uh, is no longer the case. If you, you know, talk to missiologists, that center of, of global Christianity has very distinctly shifted to Africa, to Latin America. Um, more Christians in the world today speak Spanish than speak any other single language. And more than 80 percent of evangelical Christians are are not white. Um, and that's not a good or a bad thing. We're not saying that's, you know, something, you know, we want more white people to be Christians. We want more non-white people to be Christians, to be following Jesus. But the problem is when we still think of ourselves as Americans, as the center of the universe, and that the that we have, you know, that all theological wisdom comes from the United States and emanates out, uh, that all resources come from here and emanate out. And we see the rest of the world as a mission field and forget that they may have a mission for that God may have a mission for us drawing, working through people from other parts and brothers and sisters in Christ in other parts of the world to enrich the American church as well. So if you're listening uh, to Matthew and uh, and Carmen right now and you're asking that, let me encourage you to ask yourself this. When you think of new churches um, in your community, in your city, when you think of people who are publicly expressing faith in Jesus um, in your community, in your city, in your state and across the nation. What do those people look like and what do they sound like? And just pause there, hit the pause button and recognize our brothers and sisters in Christ, increasingly those who are vocal and public uh, about their faith, those who are speaking truth to the issues of the day, um, are people of color, increasingly uh, women, and many of them um, speaking with at least an accent that, uh, you know, doesn't come from middle rural America. So just consider that as we um, as we continue our conversation here with Matthew Sorens. The brand new book is Inalienable. And we're talking about how listening to marginalized voices. When we talk about marginalized voices, we're talking about women. We're talking about people of color. Um, we're talking about people from other parts of the kingdom around the world. Um, how marginalized kingdom voices can help us, can help us in terms of the future of the American church. We're going to continue our conversation with Matthew in just a moment. This is amazing We're continuing our conversation with Matthew Sorens from World Relief. Um, we're talking about a brand new book he has co-authored um, with Eric Costanzo, am I pronouncing his last name correctly? Yeah, pretty close. And Daniel Yang. Um, the book is Inalienable. Matthew, you're helping us um, recognize not only the need in the American church, which I think we, I, I do think we recognize. I do think we recognize something is broken. Um, but what you guys are offering is like a hope-filled 
future. So talk with us about the voices that you're seeking to help us hear. Um, and then how, um, like, how does that happen? How do we refocus on the inalienable attributes of the kingdom of God, the image of God, the word of God, the mission of God? Yeah. You know, one of my favorite parts about writing this book and, and, and Eric and Daniel did similar things was, and this was in the pandemic. So I was sitting around my bedroom for a, a lot of this time. Uh, I just set up, you know, Skype and Zoom conversations with people whom I've had the interact opportunity to interact around the world in the course of my work with World Relief. So some colleagues in Africa, um, some church leaders in Latin America, um, and basically just ask them a series of questions. What do you think about when you think about the kingdom of God? You know, how, you know, what do you think about when you hear the American church? What do you see as the American church is a blessing for the global church? And what do you think maybe the American church is, has maybe lost its way? And those interviews were so instructive to me. Um, and also just a lot of common themes that came out across, you know, from Africa and Asia and Latin America and some from Europe as well. And then from some immigrant and African-American church leaders in the U.S. Um, it was just really fascinating kind of seeing some of the themes that emerged. So that was really where, you know, that was our first step with writing this book was not to presume we had the prescription. But I'm glad that it comes across as hopeful. That is absolutely our goal. The first chapter, if you, you know, you might feel like we're a little down on the American church. Our goal is really to establish, here's the problem. Here's why, um, to maybe use a little hyperbole, the American church needs saving. Um, not in the in a salvific sense, um, because Jesus is a savior, but, you know, Jesus has promised that the church would always, you know, it would, it would not be overtaken. He didn't say that to the U.S. church necessarily or any particular geography. And so our goal is really to say, how can we learn from sisters and brothers in Christ? And, um, and so in terms of the second question of how do we practically do that, um, you know, hopefully reading the book is a first start. But one of the one of the things we say early on in the book is we hope you will be noting the footnotes of this book and go to some of the books that we're citing and just expand the theological perspectives that are informing your life. The vast majority of Americans, not by intention, but just because of the place where we live, tend to hear from people who share a lot of our perspectives um, and that doesn't mean you will agree with everything you read. I think we've come somehow gotten this idea that you can only read things that you 100% agree with. And that's a pretty stifling uh, way to live uh, because we can never be challenged and stretched. And, you know, we cite some authors here who we don't agree with on every issue, but we think that they have some wisdom to bring to a particular issue uh, that we want to lift up. And um, so we hope people will in some ways use even the, you know, the notes to the book as a further reading guide and to expand the voices that are informing their perspectives and also just get back to God's word, um, which might mean turning off some other voices, uh, even, you know, turning off social media, turning off uh, some of your, our news consumption and really focusing. Uh, one of the things we heard from so many pastors, I think every pastor can identify with this is it's really hard to help disciple people well when they're effectively being discipled by cable news or by things they're reading on social media. And, you know, those are neutral tools. They can be used for good or for ill, but when they are such a large part of the diet of what we're consuming, and frankly, most evangelical Christians, by our own admission, spend very little time in the Word. And that's one of the other challenges. And, and one of the things, frankly, we heard from global Christians is it doesn't seem like American Christians have the same uh, emphasis on the authority of God's Word that they that frankly, in many cases, through missionaries, they taught us to have. Um, mm -hmm. But it is in some ways sort of gone by the wayside, or we think we know what that says, and we've you know focused our time and attention elsewhere. 
I think for those of us who've been, you know, praying for revival and been asking God to, you know, send a, a fresh wind of his spirit, you know, the people who have arrived um, as missionaries, essentially, to the United States have come from other places around the world. And sometimes um, we are not attuned to hear them. Um, sometimes we are not receptive of the gospel um, from them. And I, it occurs to me that that's, that is absolutely necessary. Um, sometimes, Matthew, we want things for other people that they don't necessarily want for themselves. Um, and we think of the gospel and or a particular expression of Christian worship or practices um, as the, it has to be this way, like the, the forms of it. Um, talk with us about the observations you make about the Christian approach to advocacy and or the Great Commission, because those are influenced when we really listen to other people instead of making assumptions about them. Yeah, you know, so those are the last, really the last two chapters of the book. One is on advocacy, uh, but, but a way that, you know, focus on discipleship freed from partisanship. Uh, and then the next chapter is on the Great Commission. And um, so in terms of advocacy, that's sort of my wheelhouse in my work with World Relief. I think there's kind of two, you know, potential ways to err as we think about advocacy. One is to say we need to cast our lot with one political party or the other and affirm everything that they, that party says. And in some ways, it supplants God's word as our authority, is the position of one party or the other, uh, where we have to look the other way as they you know, say things that are pretty clearly unbiblical, but we've got to be loyal to the party. And we think that sort of idolatry has actually gotten the American church into a lot of trouble. And it can happen on the left or the right. But the, the, the alternative for some Christians is to say, well, we don't do politics. We don't talk about politics. We don't go near that. Which, if that means we don't endorse candidates or parties, I'm fine with that. I think that's probably fairly wise. But if it means we're never going to talk about issues of a public nature that governmental policies impact and bring biblical wisdom to those conversations, we are effectively outsourcing discipleship on a huge, a huge part of our lives to you know, extra-biblical sources. And I mean, I would say that's what I've observed with looking at issues of immigration. I probably shared the stat with your listeners before that only 12 percent of evangelical Christians say they think about issues of immigration primarily from the perspective of the Bible by their own admission in LifeWay Research's surveys. I mean, you expect people to know to kind of lie on that question. The Bible is probably the right answer. But um, by their own admission, that's not an issue we think of as a biblical issue, not because the Bible doesn't say anything on it, but because we've not often been, been very effectively discipled. So that's really our call is to say, how do we subject our thinking about political issues to God's word and yet bring God's word fully into those conversations? And then the second question is on the Great Commission. Um, my, colleague, my friend Daniel Yang wrote this chapter for the most part, and he really let off his, with his time as a missionary in Canada, church planting, where he was confronted very early on by a question from someone in the community where he was planting this church who said, you know, are you bringing up that American religion up here? And Daniel said that really struck him because, of course, that's not his goal to bring American religion. It's to bring the gospel. Mm -hmm. It's to bring Jesus. But it helped him sort of reset and ask, how much of what I'm bringing with me is mm -hmm. actually beyond the gospel, is a cultural value? And there's, I mean, American Missions has a mixed history, some beautiful work, and we've, sure. we document some of that. But we've certainly also brought some cultural values with us that weren't part of the gospel 
that weren't always helpful either and were actually yeah. harmful in some societies. And to be able no to soberly assess that, I think, is really important, even as we continue to I – mean, we're affirming the importance of the Great Commission, the centrality of the Great Commission, but it is making disciples of all nations, not making little Americas all over the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Matthew, thank you, as always. Um, such excellent input. The book is inalienable, um, and it is available today. You can find Matthew at World Relief. Um, You can also find him at the Evangelical Immigration Table. When you are considering the other, um, how are you doing that? From what view? Are we viewing others from a worldly perspective or are we viewing others as potential brothers and sisters with whom we're going to spend all eternity and which actually matters most to us? Um, It's an immigration conversation. It's also a great commission conversation and it's commission uh, and it's a conversation we got to keep having over and over and over again. Let's get the word of God back to its rightful place in our lives that the church could be restored to her rightful place in the culture. We got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. All right, now that you've heard that conversation with Matthew Sorens, I'd like to share with you, we've got copies of the book Inalienable to give away today. So to enter that drawing, you text the word book to 877-933-2484. Again, if you want to uh, get a copy of Inalienable by Matthew Sorens, encourage you to text the word book to 877-933-2484. All right, so on this uh, July the 4th, on this day when we um, express our gratitude to God for this nation in which we live and the independence that we enjoy, the freedoms we enjoy here, I want you to consider um, to whom you pledge your allegiance, what it, what it means to pledge your allegiance to a flag, what it means for you to pledge your allegiance to Christ above all, what it means for us to be dual citizens, both of the kingdom of heaven and a particular kingdom of this earth, what today means for people who are seeking Uh, to enjoy the kinds of freedom and liberty that we have here in the United States. I want you to be praying today for people who are unjustly incarcerated around the world, those living in in anything but freedom. And I want you to be praying for the future of this country, that we might continue to be uh, a a city on a hill, uh, a place from which freedom rings, uh, and a a nation um, whose dignity is built on her fidelity to the God who endows us with these self-evident, inalienable rights. Happy Fourth of July. Happy birthday, America. Let us be a people who live well the freedoms granted to us by God and won for us by the blood of others. Have a great day and God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.